when I was a young monk, they didn't encourage us to spend a lot of time speculating on other monks more senior than us as to what level of attainment they might have in the practice, what results they may have achieved. This is something you have to know for yourself. But there was a common saying in the forest monasteries that you can tell where somebody's practice is at by seeing how well they deal with dukkha, suffering. Because inevitably in life, dukkha will come along in one form or other. <clears throat> we can't control the world. We can't always get things the way we want. So there'll always be dukkha arising in the body, in the mind. It's how well we deal with that. It's one way of looking at the practice rather than considering what level of samadhi or jhana we might have attained or someone else has attained, what level of magapala somebody has attained. Just more practical. Does, how does dukkha affect you? What happens in your mind when things go the way you want? Do you get excited and attached to the pleasure and the happiness of that? When things don't go the way you want, do you get upset? Do you complain? Do you get sad or depressed? These are practical reflections we can use every day. And Traditionally, the monks who were disciples of Ajahn Chah were always known as ones who displayed great forbearance and patience, endurance in the face of dukkha, because that's how he trained them. You could often, it would, it would be hard to judge or know somebody's level of attainment <coughs> simply because they didn't give you the chance to know. Senior monks wouldn't display suffering in their behavior. They would live in a peaceful way, behave according to the Dhamma Vinaya. Whatever was going on, you couldn't quite tell in their minds whether they were suffering or not. That's because Ajahn Chah trained people in this way, learning not to always be seeking to follow kilesa, follow desires and attachments, not to complain, not to want a lot of things, to be happy, to accept the way things are, to accept the conditions and the way things are, and use mindfulness and wisdom to reflect rather than following desire. Because we're used to following desire in the lay life. We're always following kilesa, trying to get what we want, 
get away from what we don't want and don't like, always following our wants, our desires. As soon as you come into the monastery, you see that way of behaving is no longer applicable, it won't work. Because we don't have money, we don't have material possessions. We have a very high level of sila, restraint, moral discipline, monastic discipline. So we don't just follow desire, it's not possible. And actually a lot of the suffering of a monk is in the beginning is because they can't follow desire, because of the vinaya and because of the training. What do they do with it? They have to watch it. They watch desire getting frustrated. If you try and follow desire, you just get more suffering. So you're learning to let go. This brings, brings us to the heart of, or the essence of what Lumpur Chao was teaching. Establishing mindfulness, insight, and then letting go of desire and attachment to free our mind from suffering. But to do that we have to face up and look at suffering, understand it, and then understand what its cause is and let go of that. If we just follow desire and attachment all the time, well, we won't see the cause of suffering, we'll just be indulging it, following it, so we remain blind, deluded. So over and over again in our practice we're frustrating desire and attachment, sometimes in the meditations, sometimes just in basic mindfulness practice, following the Vinaya, sometimes teachers do it for us. But it's very much a part of our practice and this is where we have to learn to be patient and willing to put effort into the practice, otherwise it won't work. I remember when I was first staying at Wapapong, I had lost my cup and the monk next to me said, you don't ask for a cup, you find a cup. If you don't have a cup, you don't get any drinks, even just water is inconvenient if you don't have a cup. In those days there's no plastic bottles, no taps. Cups could be quite important. You had a kettle and you didn't drink out of the spout of the kettle, that was considered gross. If you lost your cup or didn't have a cup, it was a big thing. At the very least you have to go and get some bamboo cut it, get a section of bamboo and you can use that as a cup. Or you go looking around the kitchen, maybe you can find an old cup that's been discarded. That was the way you were trained at Wapapong. You didn't ask for things and you didn't make a fuss. You just learned to get by with what's there. If you walk around complaining, you'd receive sympathy and compassion but at the same time, everybody would look at you as just like a baby monk, complaining, crying, no different from a kid. 
everything was like that. That was the flavor of the practice because that's the way Ajahn Chah trained people. Like when I used to upatang Ajahn Chah, you do either day shifts or night shifts. When you come off your night shift, it would be the opposite day usually or the day after. Sometimes I'd go back to Wat Nana Chat from Wat Bapong after my shift. If it's a night shift, come off in the morning, have your meal. And sometimes there may be some kind of a chance of a lift. Other times, no lift. You just have to walk back eight kilometers in the heat of the sun in the middle of the day. That was the way it was. You no choice and to start moaning around saying, I need a lift. Again, people would sympathize, but they'd also look at you as like somebody with no patience, doesn't know how to practice yet. So sometimes you just have to make do with what's available. If there's no vehicle, you walked. What you're working with is <coughs> working with desire and attachment, expectations. You're not deliberately looking to make life hard for yourself. No one else would be deliberately trying to do that to you either. It's a more subtle thing than that. Just learning how to take every situation as part of the practice. Reflecting on the Dhamma that's arising right here and now and dealing with it in a way that's skillful. Not giving in to suffering mental proliferation, creating more suffering out of maybe a difficult experience. You just learn to be patient and mindful. Often when we come into the practice, we read a lot, we hear a lot, and we have the theory, and that's quite useful. But it's not yet the practical experience of the practice. It's just ideas, knowledge, memory. It hasn't yet been translated into day-to-day -day mindfulness and wisdom, how to look after the mind from moment to moment as we go through our day. So we have to learn how to make use of what we have. If we just rely on the book knowledge alone, often it's too much, it's like a heavy weight. Complicates the mind, clutters the mind. It's not that it's wrong, but it can be actually a little bit detached or, or uh, too far away from reality. Ajahn Chah used to say knowledge is a bit like, yeah, it's a tool that you use, the book knowledge, the scriptural knowledge, but it's a tool that you have to get just right, otherwise it can be a problem. So he compared it to like, the villagers, when they go collecting mangoes from the mango tree, they have a tall piece of bamboo with a knife on the end. That they go to the branches of the, under the branches of the tree and they cut the stem of the mango fruit and it will drop down for them, so they can collect harvest mangoes. If your piece of bamboo is too long, will you overreach the bamboo? Uh, overreach the mango, you can't get it, it's too long. So that's like somebody who has too much knowledge. They just can't see the reality in front of them because they're stuck in their head with the knowledge.
Other times some people might have a stick, a bamboo that's too short. They can't reach the branch. They don't have enough knowledge. Maybe they haven't listened to the Dhamma enough so they don't really know what they're doing. They haven't reflected. It's full of doubt, uncertainty or just blundering along. You have to learn to get a stick that's just the right length to get the mangoes down. We have to learn to use the knowledge we've gained from the books and the talks and then apply it to our practice in daily life, not just leave it as a lot of information in the mind that may be almost an obstacle to the practice. We also have a lot of knowledge which is nothing to do with the Dhamma and Vinaya, knowledge of the world, information about life, society, jobs, family, and so on. Again, this is great fuel for mental proliferation. We can make all our plans, daydreams, reminisce on the past, plan for the future. Again, Ajahn Chah used to say, don't create a mansion in the sky. You don't use all this mental proliferation just to create endless images and stories in the mind that just take you away from reality, take you away from mindfulness at the present moment, you're just caught into endless storytelling, creating stuff that isn't actually true. It's just mental proliferation based on memories and perceptions. As we meditate, we'll see that's you know, one of the main activities of the mind, especially as monks. We've got hours and days, plenty of free time. We can just sit there proliferating on and on and on. Maybe we'll get to the point where we're not peaceful at all. We've created so many moods, stories, distractions in the mind. Then we come back and we say, oh, meditation doesn't work. We blame our tools instead of blaming ourselves for misusing the tool or not using them at all. We end up blaming everything around us. Blame the place, the teacher, the method, the system of training, the bhikkhu life. Really, it's just us. We sit there, sit there or walk there and proliferate our, to our heart's content and end up in a big mess, confused, doubting more than before, unhappy. Again, with this tendency, we tend to just weaken our mind by always giving in to proliferation based on desires, attachments and so on. So there's not a lot of strength of mindfulness to resist kilesa. So then when we meet with dukkha, we don't have a lot to deal with it. We don't have much preparation for it. You know, something comes our way that we don't like an unpleasant experience, so it puts us in a bad mood. Somebody says something we don't agree with or they behave in a way we don't like, so we get angry or upset about it, keep thinking about it. Someone tells us to do something we don't want to do or don't like, we get upset about it. Because there's not much mindfulness there and we're used to just proliferating based on our experience. If we get what we want, we're happy and we can proliferate in that way for a while, but still there's no mindfulness. It just creates more attachment. And this is where Ajahn Chah used to train 
so well, learning to establish mindfulness, patience, and then wisely reflect on our experience in the present moment. So we don't have to go and look a long way away, we just use what we've got. Some experience is pleasant, some is unpleasant. We have our requisites, we have the monastic setting, the forest, we have our body and our mind, our candors. This is the place where we practice. And nobody's perfect. He said you, you use the, it's like the trees in the forest. You have some trees are very tall and straight, some trees are crooked and bent, some trees are rotten with termites or disease. You just make use of the wood in the forest the best way you can. Even when, when you're doing construction or carpentry, sometimes you can still use a twisted bit of wood that normally might not seem so useful. You can still find some use for it if you think about it. Everything around us in our experience can be used for the Dhamma, for wise reflection, for developing mindfulness, for developing understanding. If we want to doubt a lot, we'll start with the basic reflections that we're trained in. You know, we actually are given reflections to use to prepare ourselves for developing mindfulness and wisdom. We reflect on the use of the requisites. Every day we eat food, we eat in our bowl. So we have reflections on why we eat, what the purpose is, and then what the nature of food is. Where does it come from? It comes from the four elements earth, air, fire, water. What's its nature? Well, its nature is it's impermanent, unattractive. And food doesn't stay smelling nice, looking nice for very long. If you keep your meal in your bowl overnight, by the next day you wouldn't want to touch it. Already it starts to go rotten, starts to get mouldy. After a few days, it'd be totally repulsive. That's a reflection. It's not to create another mood based on proliferation, and I hate food or something like that. It's just to reflect. That's the nature of food. If you have old food that's gone off, well, you simply take it out of your bowl or a container and you throw it away. That's the correct thing to do because it's no longer healthy. When you don't get angry with it or upset with it or depressed by it, you just know that's what happens with food when you leave it after a while. When it goes into your stomach, it's the same. It comes out the other end as excrement and urine. It's unattractive and nobody wants it. You don't get angry with your excrement, your urine. You just know well, that's the way of it. It's unpleasant, unattractive. So you start to reflect like that. You use your robes, your food, your accommodation, medicines, other requisites. You reflect, this is the way it is. As it comes in contact with the body, it becomes unattractive, repulsive, dirty, whatever. It's not to make us unhappy with the world, it's just to know this is the way the world is. It's the nature of the world, it's like this, made up of the four elements. We build a new building and we try and make it as convenient and useful and as a good place for the practice as possible. But it's still just the four elements. It's earth, mainly it's just earth and water. 
different combinations, bricks, timber, concrete. Those elements are impermanent, it won't last forever, degenerates. And yet the proliferating mind will add on to it, won't it? So we say, this is beautiful, or this is ugly, I like this, I don't like that. If it's a hall, then often halls generate proliferation. When people first see it, they say, oh, what a big hall. There's only a few people in it. Then when you have a festival day and it's full of people, you say, oh, the hall's too small. The hall is just the hall. It's just a collection of elements and knows nothing. It's the mind that proliferates and adds on these labels, opinions, views, likes and dislikes. That's where we have to learn to let go. Let go of what the mind creates out of the experience, out of the object. All the additional moods, mental proliferation, desire and attachment that we let the mind indulge in. That's where we're establishing mindfulness to let go. So we have plenty of opportunity to practice in this way because our mind is doing this all the time. Again, coming back to the way Ajahn Chah taught you, we, we practice so that whether it's the middle of the day or the middle of the night, the qualities of mindfulness, wise reflection are established. We're not part-time monks, you're just sort of a monk a little bit of the day and the rest of the day you just let things go and proliferate and follow desire, indulge your kalesa. You have to be developing the practice, the path at all times. Obviously it is frustrating, but it's only the kalesas that are getting frustrated. Just out of habit, we followed the kalesas for so long. Now we're trying to develop mindfulness, insight, wisdom, that takes some time because we've let the kilesas dominate the mind for so long. Well, to develop the path takes some time. The alternative is to complete, to continue to suffer, continue to get caught into the results of the kilesas, which is always suffering. More moods, according to excitement, depression, happiness, sadness. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair, on and on. Often we see peace as in terms of getting what we want. So even as monastics, you know, we say we're peaceful when we get the conditions we want. And when we're fed up with the monastery, we go off, say, I'm going to go on Tudong, live on my own. So I don't have to have anything to do with anybody. Well, of course, you might achieve some seclusion, some peace in that way, maybe. But it's a pretty limited, weak kind of peace because as soon as you come back into contact with conditions that you don't particularly like, well, the mind's proliferating again, unhappy again. It's the peace that Ajahn Chah says, it's the peace like you go off to the cave or the lonely forest and you can develop some calm, some samadhi, but it's just the rock squashing the grass down. As soon as you pick the rock up, the grass springs back up. You come back into a monastery or involved with people or whatever, kilesas are aroused again. Attraction for those we like, aversion for those we don't like. 
because what's lacking is the insight, the nature dukkha anatta, into the nature of mental states. We have to develop an insight into the nature of all conditions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, see them for the way they are, whether we're on our own or we're with other people, we're busy, we're quiet. That kind of insight is, yeah, you're developing that at all times. So it's, it's available, it's ready, whatever the situation, whatever the conditions. Otherwise our practice is based on always trying to get things the way we like, the way we want. Very limited and you will probably find not very strong, not, not able to stand up to the test of time and what time brings us. Because over time conditions change. It's just the nature of the world. Our bodies change. We get sick, sometimes we have pains and fevers and problems, sometimes other times we're just getting older, weaker. The world around us is changing. People come and go. Conditions change. If we have no resilience to that and no insight into that, then we'll always be on the run, running away from what we don't like hoping for what we do like, but never quite achieving peace. So it's useful to reflect back on the way Ajahn Chah taught and see where dukkha really arises in your mind day by day. What is dukkha? What is its nature? What's its cause? You establish some real immunity to dukkha immunity through the practice. So even if you're not getting what you want or the conditions are not ideal, not perfect, not to your liking, it doesn't matter. The mind can cope with that. The mind is peaceful enough to deal with that and reflect on it. If you are in doubt, Ajahn Chah always said, go back to your own body. Just reflect this body. What's it made of? What is it? It's made of the four elements and it's impermanent, it doesn't last. We always have an image of this body, whether we realize it or not, the mind identifies with it, attaches to it. We like to make it look a certain way. Often our mind's image is different from the reality of the body outside. And of course we have the image of other people's bodies gives rise to sexual desire, craving, the attractive aspects of the human body. You really contemplate that. And this body is impermanent. It's changing. It won't last. It's not the real seat of happiness. It's not the real goal of our practice. To have a nice body, you know, a healthy body is useful, it's a useful vehicle for the practice, but it's ultimately doomed, it's ultimately going to trick you, because it won't last forever, it won't bring you ultimate happiness. You keep contemplating that, the nature of this body, the 32 parts, four elements, the unattractiveness of the body, it brings that separation between mind and body, so that the mind, you can see the mind reflect more deeply on the more refined states of samadhi and in the 
states of letting go through insight. You see mind and body separate things. Why is it peaceful when you meditate? It's because you're letting go of the body. As long as you can't let go of the body temporarily, well, the mind's still caught into sensuality, so the mind won't attain one-pointedness. We still get caught out by aches and pains and our reaction to them. Still get caught out by sensual desire. Thinking about other people, sexual fantasies, desires, images, pleasure-seeking and so on. It all comes back to seeking, seeing the true nature of this body, seeing through it. So I'll leave you with these uh, words for your reflection tonight. <clears throat>